Grow up, or maybe not, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in the world that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Aaron Duncan and Zach Narrison. Oh, I changed it up. As always, thank you all so much for listening, and we've been getting some really good engagement as of late from people on the interwebs, Uh, so thank you all so much. It's always a pleasure to talk shop with our listeners. You're the reason we do it. Um, Just a reminder, the final reminder, that next week we start our October interviews. And we have an exciting group of scholars coming on, Matt Anderson and Amos Young, later on in the month. And next week we're kicking it all off with the great Niebuhr, Bart, and Bonhoeffer scholar, Joshua Malden. Uh, Crazy excited for that. And we're excited to announce for the very first time today, just got all firmed up last week. Unfortunately, Zach won't be joining us for it, I don't think, but we'll see. Uh, We will be releasing a crazy double episode the week of Halloween, where we will be reading that new book, Defending Christian Nationalism, and we'll be having very special guests on to read and respond to that book with us friend of the show, Dr. Jeremy Sabella, will be on the first episode, and my personal friend and former professor, Dr. John Weatherly, will be joining us on the second part. Guys, I can't get it through my brain that we're going to be talking with all these people this next month. Five guests in four weeks. You got to be kidding. It will be so ghoul. Hey, you so much. (laughs) I... I can feel it in my bones, though that might just be witchful thinking. Yikes. But yeah, listen in, everybody. You can even listen in while you're exorcising. Do you know what the worst part about this is? (laughs) Can I I tell you? It's that listening to you say this, but also reading it before you say it, (laughs) because I'm sat right next to you, and I can't anticipate how badly it's going to be. Yeah, I'm cutting this part. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I mean, if you guys think about it, this has got to be the preferred Niebuhr podcast for all exorcists, right? Oh, my gosh. Because it's the only one. It's the only Niebuhr podcast. So to all you exorcists listening in, this next month's for you. Okay, let's get into it. Aaron, the scripture, if you will, please. So there are three. The first scripture is Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. He called a child whom he put among them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Second scripture is first Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. And the last scripture, first Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, be infants in evil. But in thinking, be adults. Mm, All right. So just based on the scriptures, thank you for reading that. 
Aaron, mm-hmm. just based on the scriptures that Niebuhr chose here for this here chapter, it seems pretty obvious from the jump he's going to be setting up some kind of dialectic between the child and the adult. I guess that's more or less the name of the chapter two, child, childhood and maturity. Now, this chapter is split into four sections, and this time there is no introduction, actually. Um, but the, the, the first part really acts like an introduction. We'll get there here in a second. But yeah, he just kind of launches into it. So here are the official Love Thy Neighbor section titles. Again, Aaron came up with his own. Aaron's sound cooler, but I think they're like Aaron's headlines for each one. They sound cooler, but they're wrong. (laughs) Okay. So here are the official Love Thy Neighbor section titles. He doesn't title them, but I do as I'm reading them to help organize the chapter in my brain a little and our brains. So here they are. Part one, childhood and maturity as dialectic. Part two, innocent sincerity and inevitable deception. Part three, fascism and communism. And part four, childlikeness in an adult. Childlikeness within an adult. All right, part one, childhood and maturity as dialectic. What is this talking about, Zach? I mean, he begins off with the line, uh, Jesus seems to place a premium, you know, referencing back to the verses. Jesus seems to place a premium upon childlikeness. St. Paul implies the necessity of maturity. And this is like one of those, uh, actually, it's a, I think a really good dialectic to draw or um, a division to draw because there is kind of this weird call by Jesus to be childlike. And there is this weird call by Paul to be childlike. But he kind of breaks it down as he kind of goes through this first section. And he focuses on highlighting the, the, the qualities of maturity, which we must retain, but also going into the less savory parts of maturity. You know, he starts off the third paragraph, maturity is death the body begins to slowly die shortly after it has reached its full growth at 25 years or thereabouts. Yeah. But he also highlights some of the positives of youth and how youth is like, there's a sense in which we want to retain it. We want to hold on to it because it has a way of, I don't know, invigorating life, I guess. So basically there's good things and bad things about both childhood and maturity. There's good things and bad things about childhood. There's good things and bad things about maturing. Yeah. Um, and did you guys have you guys ever thought about the these kind of contrasting scriptures and try to work them out in your own heads at well, times? Because obviously, like when I want to preach about you know Jesus' exaltation, kind of of the child, the children in the kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of turning them into examples, that does run, run contrary, and we tend to abuse it. We we tend to give the wrong answer for that, which then tends to mess up how we treat Paul when he's talking about we need to grow yeah. up. You know, have you guys ever thought about that? Yeah, yeah no. I have. Like, <clears throat> but I, whenever I've thought about it, I've only put the Matthew 18 and first Corinthians, first Corinthians 13 passages together. I haven't added the third one that neighbor has on here, the chapter 14, where he says that be rather infants and evil, uh, and thinking oh, yeah. as adults. So it's a bit more or less towards your actions than actually your thinking itself. Which scripture was that? That's first Corinthians 14 20. Oh, yeah, that is. Yeah. So Paul kind of creates his own dialectic then. Yeah, yeah, a bit. Yeah. So I guess he maybe Paul was somewhat familiar with this sort of comments uh, mm-hmm. above, you know, Jesus or something like that. Well, I think like, you know, for all 
the research I've done or like, you know, preach trying to like, I, I have not yet preached on that passage. And part of that is because I don't quite, I don't like, I've, I know there's a lot of different ways to understand it. And I think it becomes like a catch all for like what people want Jesus to be saying. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't think that he wants us to be like people. Some people take that weird route of saying that like, it's, it's us wanting to treat God like, you know, our daddy, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. yeah. Like, Abba. Like, yeah. And it's, it's like, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Um, not just cause that makes you a little, you know, weirded out, but um, it's just like kind of a strange, it's kind of a mystery a little bit. And I think that I think Niebuhr is really the only one that I've heard like a good take on it. Yeah. From. I think, I think Niebuhr develops it really well. And I'll tell you what, how I hear it abused all the time is, to have a childlike faith is mm-hmm. to not think about the it's complexities of things. Like you walk in on a, on a, uh, on a room of theologians debating things and you're like, why can't you guys just be simple in your faith or something? I don't know. That's yeah. a, an imagined hypothetical. It's also masqueraded as like a simple trust mm-hmm. in something yeah. else. It does have a sense, a screaming sort of a, alert that we need to be like not sophisticated in our responses or right. really scientific or maybe um science is bad or maybe yeah. philosophy yeah. is bad yeah and that hurts us too i think that jesus is making a uh, a rejection of modernity or something like that you know yeah and, or well, s- becoming civilized or something yeah a lot of that to do with it is though you know yeah well so let's let's see what Niebuhr says about it that was a good opening uh zach so uh, he does contrast here as he's trying to open this up the mature man versus the child man and not to be confused with with, uh what he's going to say later is going to be childlikeness childlikeness is different from childishness Mm -hmm. um childishness is kind of what he's talking about with the child man so the mature man versus the child man how does he describe this distinction, I guess, between who the mature man is and who the child man is? Well, in the first section, it's not as like, it's not laid like a proposition, but child childishness attributes kind of anthropomorphizes causes and things unknown in the world and makes stories out of stuff like fairy tales, goblins, ghouls, these sort of things. Uh, But modern, modern man is something that can understand or discern the, what he neighbor calls the regularities of the natural process and learn to interpret them. Um, I think later on, he says like the child is concerned with uh, answering the why question and yeah. he, and the, the adult is concerned with answering the how question. So the mature person is going to be more scientific and answering the how yeah. where the child is going to be asking, you know, ultimate significance. So the kinds of answers you come up with as a child are what he calls ultimate forces for every natural event. And he says, thus peopling his world, mm-hmm. quote, thus pe- peopling his world with spirits, monsters, gods, and devils, and other mysterious potencies. Yeah, good. So uh, we yeah. should we should try to be the mature man on, in, in, in these topics. But now now he's going to go into like contrasting childishness mm-hmm. and childlikeness. What's what's the difference between these two? Well, in, in the first section, because you, you just brought up chapter, the section four, where like Niebuhr mm-hmm. calls the child as a theologian, as like a poet. Oh, yeah, um, more on that later. Yeah. But the first section uh, in which I was kind of what kind of trying to explain a bit um neighbor says that a childhood cannot see beyond its time and place it's very local and 
the ultimate significance mm-hmm. is that itself. And later Niebuhr de- will develop that childhood is essentially just complete egocentricity um, and simplicity. Whereas m- m- uh, modern man and maturity is complex and it has a larger grasp on the world than the child does. Yeah, good. So the way that I understood kind of the difference between childishness and childlikeness is kind of this point that he wants to come back to later on. And he says that there is this conversion to not a retention of childhood. Mm-hmm. And the point and why he poses it kind of as a conversion to childhood yeah. and not a retention of childhood is that we have to go through a process of understanding more about the world. That's necessary. And we can't keep ourselves from knowing more about the world as we age and keep our innocence. So there has to be, we have this opportunity as adults to reclaim a lot of the good things about what it means to be a child. Now that we've grown and adulted, we can look back at some of the virtues, some of the the valuable things that children can teach us without sacrificing, and we couldn't even if we tried, um, the things that make us different from children and that we know more now. We know more about the world. And he, he wants to draw this line between, like he wants to say we're not retaining our childhood, like mm-hmm. Peter Pan syndrome, trying to remain yeah. kids the whole time, because we can't, you know, you can't possibly do that. So we have to kind of go through the, the fire of reason and, and adulthood uh, and understanding the way that the world works And then once we're kind of separated from our childhood, we can go back and kind of reclaim some things. Childlikeness is the act of kind of reclaiming some good stuff about childhood and childishness is retaining the childhood, Peter Pan syndrome. Now for part two, so this next section, innocent sincerity versus inevitable deception. We should warn our listeners that in this section, he's going to start off with these same, the same dialectic of childhood and maturity, but it, it, it will balloon into talking about tribes and nations and stuff like that here in a second. So, I mean, he's going to end up applying this to a, a lot of different stuff. So in this, in this section, um, he starts off kind of making the, the claim that the child begins innocent. Um, the child begins not at war within itself. It accepts the world as it's given to them, you know, um, and at most it will, you know, devise some questions about ultimate reality, like why this and why that type of thing. But ultimately uh, it's kind of in a, the child is blessed to be kind of in a secure place where it isn't uh, bombarded with a lot of the collisions that occur within adulthood, like morality and expected morality and, and, uh, and things like that. Freedom and reason as well. Yeah. Freedom. It doesn't yeah. have to, yeah. It doesn't have to negotiate some kind of compromise and, uh, between, between that conflict of freedom and, yeah. and I mean, and, and the way Niebuhr describes it is that I think in, in the reason, and in freedom is not total awareness, but there's like a limited awareness of like what we're capable of in our surroundings. So what oftentimes happens and when we try to rationalize, you know, those earlier um, impulses is we try to rationalize in such a way that it expands those impulses. It kind of like what Hume says that reason is the slave of the passions and mm-hmm. stuff. They mm-hmm. kind of write out the book. Yeah. And so as, as we mature, And this is kind of where Niebuhr makes the big turn of this section. 
as we mature and uh, we become what he says is alienated, um, as we realize that the world, so we're, we're starting to learn more and more and more about the world and the way that the world works. And we start realizing more and more that it doesn't, the world doesn't quite measure up to uh, the world in our minds. There is a gulf between the way the world is and the way the world ought to be. Uh, and he uses the fall to kind of illustrate this difference. Um, but uh, there's kind of a fallen world on the outside and kind of a, a perfect expectation still on the inside. And so we, we automatically start feeling alienated from the world that we're in. And we're tempted then because we have kind of this perfect idea of the way the world should be in our minds. We're tempted to control the outside world. But he would say that he says that we we lose our innocence and we also lose our sincerity, though, because we suddenly find ourselves within a moral universe where expectations are placed on us from our communities. You know, like it's kind of like and Zach, you're a father. You know, you there's probably a time in your child's development where you start maybe making them order for themselves. Um, making them, you know, when you're at a restaurant or something like that, uh, having the, the child be responsible for their own toys. Um, there becomes kind of an expectation that begins to be revealed to them that the outside world has demands upon them. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's a key part of parenting. And I think, I don't know, uh, it, you put your kid at a, quite a disadvantage. I remember actually reading, uh, it's a weird, weird side note, but I remember reading, uh, I think it was a book by Malcolm Gladwell, but he talked about how that's the difference between uh, high achieving. So you have like a really high intellectual, like somebody who's really lofty mental capacities, I guess you could say. And you'll have two people with these capacities and the difference between them in, the, in terms of their outcomes is actually that exact thing, their ability to um, like make decisions for themselves and make their decisions. So yeah, it's a key function of like and within sure. that, as we grow up in that, and we're maybe more or less capable of anticipating and understanding the expectations of the outside, also what's happening is within us is growing this sense of ought, of the way that the world ought to be. We can't just play this game forever that the world has on us. We, we want things to be our way type of thing. Uh, and this, Tenebra says, brings about two things. One is kind of a feeling of alienation that we're living in a world that doesn't quite fit where we don't quite fit in. But also uh, the second thing that it brings about is we lose our sincerity because we'll learn how to play the game yeah. uh, instead of, instead of like, Oh, it, it, we'll, we'll learn how to play the game in order to control the game. Uh, eventually we'll learn how to say please. And thank you. You know, we'll learn how to, order for ourselves we'll learn how to appease mom and dad with taking care of my toys but this is all an attempt in a way to uh to eventually kind of exert what we want we'll play the well, game to get what we want yeah and, and i think like yeah he says all mature moral conduct is therefore infected with an element of dishonesty and insincerity the lie is always intimately related to, to the sin of egotism Adult character is forced by its own inner contradictions to pretend to be something it's not. And, you know, when I first read that, I was like, yeah, well, that's all of life. But I think I get his point now but from what you're saying, like, because I remember actually feeling that exact experience as a kid. You know what I mean? But what he's talking about is actually not adult. He maybe should have ch changed that as mature character. 
you know what I mean, is forced because what he's talking about is that is part of what maturity entails is that kind of you're, you're conforming to everybody else's expectations, everybody else's, um, there's a game that has to be played as you say. Yeah. And there's this inherent kind of deception always going on between kind of what we want and what are, what is expected of us. Yeah. Um, so we're constantly playing the game to deceive, maybe put a facade on, yeah. uh, to appease the outside world, to appease other people, that type of a thing. Um, and he's, he calls this an, an inevitability, but he says, you look at kids, you look at little kids, uh, they're so sincere that they have no filter. They'll tell you whatever they think. They'll do whatever they want. You yeah. know? <laughs> and, um, and there's a certain innocence and sincerity about that, that we lose. Uh, but suddenly when the world throws expectations on us, we learn how to fudge a little bit. We know how to put on the facade. You know, uh, what's really interesting to me is as he talks about this, you know, one of the things I thought of immediately was his own view of conflict or violence in Christian realism. And how it embodies some of what he's, or a lot of what he's talking about. Oh my about. gosh, dude. The, I think it's in this section. I think it's in section two where I put, yes, I, it is. I put an exclamation point on page 139. Um, or no, wait. On page 141, still in this section. This is the origin of Christian realism. Yeah. Like this really looks like it. Uh, of treating the world honestly and with realism. You know, not as what we would want it to be, but as it is, starting there with as it is. And we'll get there here in a second. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd be more interested in exploring, you know, maybe this isn't the right context, but I'd be interested in exploring how, if Niebuhr would have recognized that about his own view, that it, it you know, I wonder if it, it, Christian realism rightly acknowledges its own like interplay in this. You know what I mean? This idea of like being, abandoning childlikeness in order to be realistic and just play the game no. if that's like a good thing you know what i mean um yeah if it so maybe yeah i i would say even within christian realism there must be some attempt to well there's obviously an attempt to reclaim the sincerity well he says here yeah they do not they, they do not justify these conflicts to themselves or to their foes they are self-justifying advancing civilization look out upon a larger world than their own invariably they have both an imperialistic and moral, moral attitude toward the world. They seek to dominate life beyond the boundaries of their own state, but they also feel themselves bearers of the inheritance of values that transcend their national existence. It's like, yeah, so Zach just took, uh, took the leap into um, kind of talking about nations now, and that was, that's an important quote. So what we have is kind of this building from, okay, early on in the chapter, Niebuhr's talking about the child and adult, and when you become an, a, an adult, you learn how to play the game. You learn and you, you learn how to deceive because you have this sense of ought or, you, uh, you know, this dream state of the way that the world should be versus the way that the world actually is. And you have all these expectations on the world that you have to comply with in order to get by, in order to survive type of thing. Mm. So this develops this necessary kind of deception that it will inevitably always come up. There, there will always be... Uh, there's an inevitable temptation to deceive. But now, as Zach just read, we're moving into, Niebuhr's going to start applying this to nations. And he's going to draw a distinction between the tribe and the nation. He says a primitive tribe is honest. You know, it's honest about what it wants. It's honest about what it thinks its God demands. 
um, God or God's demands. It's, it's, a, it's a very brute way of understanding people groups, um, but it's sincere. Uh, and as it moves into nations, now it has to get along with other nations. Now there are global expectations placed on the nation that you have to conform to. So there's always going to be an inevitable deception mm -hmm. going on about the intentions of a nation. Uh, you're going to want to keep your own self-interest. You're going to hold your, your cards close to the vest, as it were. You're not going to be advertising your self-interest. Uh, you're going to be playing the global game, similar to how Hitler tried kind of you know, what he did with Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, I'll play the game, but that concealed a hidden deception, yeah. right? Of that concealed a deception of Hitler that, yeah, I'm going to sign this piece of paper. Um, we have a treaty now. I'm not going to attack you. Uh, I'm not, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he, you know, took, uh, took it for its own. It seems like the greater the expectations we have come and the, the larger our demands come. And therefore... The, the larger, bigger deceptions we have as yeah. well. So, I mean, it's it's kind of weird here because like the larger the world gets, you know, Niebuhr will he, he praises the League of Nations and these things that they're like, these are good things to have, but these are nations who are holding secrets against other nations and doing mm -hmm. their own little work behind the scenes. Yeah. So how can you maintain what's happening internally in your nation if you're deceiving the stuff happening outside? So the, the next part is that Niebuhr asked the question, okay, how can a functional religion, prophetic religion, how shall we deal with the deceptions of the nations? This is where I think um, his Christian realism really comes out. He says on page 141, a mature religion will know that it is dealing with something more stubborn and mysterious in human wrongdoing than some easily corrected sloth or malice. It will recognize the reality of, quote, the original sin, in other words. If it does recognize this, it will have something more than a, than a simple moral command as its plan of salvation. So a lot of times we tend to, to treat uh, politics in general as if it's just, oh, there's just you know, the one percenters are just greedy. We just need to get rid of the greedy people. Or, oh, those Democrats are just evil. We just need to, you know, get as many judges in there as possible and we're going to fix this country or something like that. So the role of the Christian religion and the role of, I think, functioning citizenry uh, in a given nation is to get rid of the deceptions, to get rid of the illusions uh, and not think that, you know, things are just all that simple. If I might just jump in here as well, I think one of the profound points Niebuhr does make is in this dialect between maturity and childlikeness. He really undermines how we would normally value that as childs being simple and, and yes. mature adults being, you know, complex, you know, blah, 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 really smart. Where he comes to say, like, you know, liberals liberal protestants have an expectation of man that follows just what other secular people are thinking that if we just have education and we just have the right ways of thinking the right rationales then we can have a great society and get rid of our self-deceptions but he was like no we have to return 
to the simple things, the profound, the simple things that are extremely profound, mm. original sin, those sorts of doctrines that actually give us a real platform to judge why tribes and nations and global powers do the things that they do. But we need to be grown up about it because a yeah. lot of times we try to find a simple solution. Yeah. And like we we will tend to think childishly in saying that if we can just get rid of this, yeah, then it's almost like instead of you know uh, goblins and ghosts that we're pinning things on, uh, yeah. now we're just pinning it on the greed. What well, seems like Niebuhr's what? understanding of the simplicity is kind of like this. It's so sim- simplicity has its own veil over its eyes, so. When you read the fall or the Genesis creation account, people just kind of immediately latch on to, oh my gosh, I can't believe this actually happened. Oh my God, I can't believe the world is 6,000 years old. The same way when you hear people go, we just need to get rid of those greedy bastards. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's very yeah, simple. There you go. So the, 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 the profound thing is not to just latch on to the stories mm-hmm. and just take them at face values, but get into the deeper meanings or evaluate what's actually happening. So we, we need, we need the explanations of an adult, but we need the sincerity of a child. Yeah. Well, I, I like what he says here when he says, you know, infantilism is psychopathic. There is no possibility of remaining as little children. There is only the possibility of becoming as little children to become as little children cannot mean to recapture innocency, to repent and be converted cannot mean to achieve perfect honesty. It must mean to achieve honesty of knowing that we are not honest. And it's like that, like, I guess in my mind, it brings together a lot of what you guys are saying in terms of there's such a striving to like, think that adulthood is this like manifestation of, uh, you know, heavenly wisdom that is simplified down to the the Mm -hmm. simplest characters, which can be placed into the lap of anyone. And they'll understand that if we just take down the greedy people, then society will be good again. Or, you know, if we just hold on to the story that the world is 6,000 years old, we'll survive. And it's like, we'll we'll maintain, we'll beat back secularity in America. And it's like, uh. And the simplicity is in the fix. Because no matter what fascism or Marxism provides in Lieber's estimation, they're just simple solutions to really complex problems. Yeah. But the, the more profound insight comes from the sincerity to accept myths that yeah. give us a bigger picture, a world picture of who we are and where our place is. So to, to kind of put a bow on this, I, I think a big problem that we have is we, we put the child where the child shouldn't be and put the adult where the adult should be. Mm-hmm. We, we make a child of ourselves when uh, we become childish, when we try to blame the world's problems on these monsters yeah. that we've kind of devised. You know, these simplified monsters out there or something like that. Uh, We need to get rid of that, but we need to retain the sincerity of the child and that the brutal honesty of the child about what they see um, without pretension. Because they have better questions. They have better questions. That's right. They have better questions. The adult has better answers and the child is better at kind of realizing their own limitations. Mm -hmm. So there's good things and bad things that we need to take from both of them. Well, and the the the, the transcend the the principle which I guess fuses both of them or transcends both of them is that principle of like no like and this is just classic Niebuhr. This is like the epitome of Niebuhr in my mind. The idea of being honest about knowing that we are not honest, like that is such yeah. a classic. Like that's how I think we go beyond those 
things that he's talking about there. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm on Twitter, I spend half the time just rolling my eyes at what people say. This is for liberals and conservatives. Just the utter simplicity of how people detect, like pin problems on certain things and their solutions that they come up with. I I think of that. I spend most of my time just thinking, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know? a great example would be somebody we interacted with just on Twitter just a little bit ago. Uh, Cliff and I both couldn't resist interacting with them, but it's basically a woman, and she said, "You know, ADHD is fake. Oh. And <laughs> you just need to re- you just need to repent and be disciplined." Yeah, was that it's actually like, real? Oh yeah, and yeah, okay, I thought it was a joke. And Cliff, Cliff and I were both sitting there, like, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but I saw his post. The response was very tempered. Mine was more direct. Um. I think I said, I think I said, uh, sister in Christ, just because our faith comes from 2000 years ago, doesn't mean our medicine. And science oh yeah. Okay. That's pretty, doesn't point. mean our medicine and science should. Oh, that's right. Cause I posted a, a gif with me pointing. Oh, up yeah, right. <laughs> well, but I think it's the epitome of what we're talking about in the sense of like, yeah, good. yeah I think discipline and repentance can be great for people with ADHD, but, uh, really, is it, is it that simple? Like, is it, yeah. Is it that you can't That's an example of a child coming up with a childish answer to the world world's problems. Yeah. And we see it all over the place, all over the place. Greg Locke. Right. We need an adult's answer to this stuff. Like what does science tell us about like why ADHD or whatever happens? Um, Why, uh, why we might see corruption? Why, uh, why Congress doesn't just pass this um, legislation on, on guns. Um, we need adult answers to this type of stuff to detect the complexity of these types of issues that, you know, to pass anything about guns, you got to get Manchin to pass it. You know, you got to get the most conservative Democrat to pass anything you want passed. It's not just as simple, you know, and he has to get reelected, you know, so it's not just as simple as what we think it is, you know, uh, to, to get some of these things done and to just get rid of, you know, the boogeyman, whatever boogeyman we have in our heads. Um, so we need the we need the how questions of the adult, but we do need the why questions of the children and we need the sincerity of the children. I mean, I love this whole I wish we could leave it, read this whole paragraph. It's a little bit long, but I mean, he really just hits home like what we need to do alternatively. Yeah. Can no. I read it? I, yeah, I have a little section marked off here on page 142. He says to become as a little child cannot mean to recapture its innocent innocency. Mm-hmm. To repent and be converted cannot mean to achieve perfect honesty. It must mean to achieve the honesty of knowing that we are not honest. To repent and be converted cannot mean that we will be emancipated from all selfishness. No spiritual insight or discipline can wholly free man of the inclination of, the hu- of, of human reason to extend the range of the self-regarding impulses with which nature has endowed him. And this is, I have this underlined, but the repentant man who knows both his dishonesty and his selfishness will be able to check these tendencies and thus prevent life from developing a consistent hypocrisy and egotism. So we can't completely go back to innocency here. And we can't just completely remove ourselves from the possibility of of deception or self-deception. But one who is knowledgeable of their own sin can, they're able to, Niebuhr says, check their own dishonesty, check their own dishonesty uh, tendencies, 
and thus prevent life from kind of cascading into this consistent form of hypocrisy and egotism. What I see kind of on the right, if we're to talk about Trumpism for a second, is that the uh, retention of child of childishness and never having a moment of repentance, never having a moment where saying, okay, maybe that's not right. And maybe we should try to do better. But instead we get kind of a cynicism that yeah. we can't attain a higher form of government or anything like that. Um, it's all just trying to go back to childhood, which makes it seem kind of fascist. But. When he gets into that, I mean, I think pretty clearly. Yeah, he does. I mean, yeah. I mean, what Niebuhr says that fascism. Well, it's the next section. The, yeah, it's the next section. But just quickly, he just, just jumps into the, this idea that fascism is a, an attempt at getting rid of, our, all of our, getting rid of all of our higher obligations to mm-hmm. others. And in a weird way, and I'm just thinking about this, trying to place neighbors' ideas here in, in, in sequential order. Tribalism isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. He says it's quite honest. Mm. Honesty in its intentions. It can be honestly, intentions can be bad or good. But it seems like it, you know, it is just a revert, trying to revert back into tribal-like states mm-hmm. of this is my group. These yeah. are these groups over here. Let's read this first section. Um, so this is part three, which I've labeled fascism, communism. And this is brilliant, man. Like how he links up childishness and fascism mm-hmm. and kind of the problems of death and adulthood and maturity with communism. It's fantastic. So uh, the opening paragraph says we are standing at a crisis in our social history. Remember, this is 1937. We are standing at a crisis in our social history in which political and social forces are strangely divided into two camps, in both of which the relation of childhood and maturity is not fully understood. The fascists seek to escape the complexities of modern civilization by returning to childhood. The communists are more correct in wishing to go forward to a higher justice, but wrong in imagining that perfect innocency is a possibility for man's natural history. So this is where he divides these two. I love that paragraph. So let's let's break down fascism here. Um, what do you guys take from this? How is how is fascism a return to childhood? Well, it's kind of weird because I mean, honestly, the first thing I thought of when I was like reading this section is like, I, you know, I don't want to call people out too much here, but I, I just like recognize like a lot of people that I know, you know what I mean? Like, or like a lot of people I interact with or like see, you know, uh, there's a real desire for this like simplicity, this, um, yeah, I mean, that's the basic, like the, for the simple answers, for the simple life, for the, for the, the core tenets. Yeah. Kind and, of an anti-intellectualism. Yeah. Anti-globalization. But, and, um, and yeah. yeah. Anti-anything complex. It's like, dude, life is a lot more complicated. And you know, it's, it's, it's anti, like we could say intertribalism or like, mm-hmm. like even the movement to ban books and stuff like this is kind of this yeah. attempt to not civilize our kids into understanding there are groups outside of theirs um, that they need to learn about in order to know how to love, Yeah, you know, and it's content with, it's actually anti that it, it, it wants to keep uh, uh, these tribes intact. One, one way you hear this all the time, is people are like, because I'm saying this because 9-11 just happened. Uh, the, I don't know what anniversary of 9-11, but it's a ways on from 9-11. Um, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, and people are always like, well, we just need to go back to the way that, I, I've, I've literally heard this line multiple times. 
we just need to go back to the way it was the days after 9-11. Like people were just so united. And it's yeah. like it, what, they're, what they're asking for there is not really realistic. It's really the result of a nation being attacked. And hopefully we don't have to replicate that in order to have we don't want that unity because it's not, it's not something that you want long-term. Well, you know, um, Howard Wass says in uh, Resident Aliens that war is the one thing that unifies a nation, right? Mm-hmm. But even the thing that Niebuhr goes further and that, I think Niebuhr would agree with that, but he, he wouldn't deny that there is anarchy in the world already. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that defines fascism for Niebuhr is that, it accentuates anarchy whilst trying to overcome anarchy in other nations. Yeah. So it's just like adding fuel to the fire. And so it's kind of, it's kind of ironic when like, and I'm just not trying to pick on Trumpers here, but when Trumpers talk about, you know, this such a law and order country and we used to be so peaceful and then they do January the 6th and stuff like that. So it's just accentuating anarchy itself it's just an irony as an attempt yeah and it's very attempt to kind of uh create a unifying structure under trump or something like that it creates anarchy yeah Yeah. and i think also one of the things that this really one of the links that he makes here that i think is really important is that connecting fascism to tribalism makes it really feel like a step back for anybody trying to do it or participate in fascism because thinking about it, like watching some of the, you know, the recent speeches and things like that by some politicians um, like Bobert, I just watched a thing by her at like a youth conference thing. And I just couldn't get over the, the, the feeling over and over again that this is just so simple. It's such like a child, like really the best way to put it is it's just childish. And then it's we, like, yeah. oh, that's literally what's going on. Like they're literally just simplifying everything down to, for like a childlike innocency, I guess. Yeah, we should acknowledge that there is something kind of inherently appealing that ultimately finds its expression in a type of fascism. Uh, I, I, I think that maybe a long time ago we talked about this. Like, I love the movie Rocky Four for so many reasons, because it really shows this difference between the United States and, and it tr- tries to draw this huge uh, contrast between the United States and Russia. Rocky is in a freaking cabin, okay? He's growing out a beard out in the wilderness. He's lifting a freaking carriage. He's not lifting weights. He's lifting a carriage with Uncle Polly on it, okay? He's doing push-ups and sit-ups and throwing stuff and climbing mountains. And then you, you cross over into the communists, right? And the, the, the Russian, what's his name? Drago, Ivan Drago. And he's like in this high-tech, like, uh, machinery laboratory type of thing working out and kind of the contrast that he's going to draw between these two types of ideas is like kind of the the earthy you know primitive uh we can still beat you russia even when we are locating you know when we're going back to infancy type of thing going back to childhood going back to the wilderness type of thing uh whereas you know we, we want to throw out all the modern conveniences, but there's a, an interesting dynamic that Niebuhr points out here is that yes, fascism wants to go back to the tribe, wants to go That's back to the earthiness, wants yeah. to go back to its, uh, to its Aryan roots or whatever, but it takes with it technology. Exactly, yeah. And it makes it so much more dangerous. I was just gonna say that because the thing with Hitler is that um, 
the one thing that really defined his leadership was a return to soil. And they had more horses in his army. Yeah. And I think tanks at one point, at some point. Yeah, they weren't a completely revolutionized military no. force. No. Yeah. And I wonder, like, if you apply, like, all of that, what you've just said so perfectly, to the Rocky Four, and how does that make America dangerous? <laughs> yeah, Rocky, exactly. How does that make America dangerous? We have very uh, basic animalistic uh we have we have certain freedoms about kind of our um our childhood yeah that we love so much along with and we talked about it with uh with uh in Sabella's book when we were talking about irony of american history but we have kind of the these pretensions about ourselves that are earthy and soil and and this great nation type of thing mm-hmm. but armed with the greatest you know armed okay. forces in the world you know uh, and we should be very wary of that combination because it's like giving a, 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 a gun, a gun, gun to a child, <laughs> you know, is they're, they're thinking like a child in their yeah. simplistic ways, but now they have, you know, all this power to kill people with, Gosh. you know, and, and what yeah. a, what a powerful image for America right now, right? Yeah. The child with a gun in a school it's like handing lauren lauren bober a grenade and just like seeing yeah. what she does with it <laughs> it's amazing to bring it together yeah. you, your both of you guys comments the lone lauren bobert at this conference i think she was wasn't she zach like she had like a, a gun and a holster side. yeah as she yeah. was talking at this youth rally yeah. like think about because zach was just talking about how simplistic this is her the way that she was talking and she's got a gun on her hip you know, it's, it's who would you rather have a child or an adult with a gun, a cool headed adult, probably a, a mature, cool headed adult. Right. But you give you give technology of warfare to a screaming baby with simplistic drives and ambitions. It's going to be dangerous. Yeah. So I wanted to bring out this one point right here where I actually put OMG next to um, I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Um, a modern nation, talking about fascism, a modern nation cannot force itself into the mold of a primitive tribe. Mm. The consequence of such an effort is not childlike innocency, but the sadism of a concentration camp. Yikes. Did anybody else get chills when you read that? Yeah. Like this is written 1937. Okay. Just think about that. Like that this child now, like the, this child of tribalism, Germany has the will to, you know, through its simple mind to us versus them, to take out the, the evildoers, um, the, the, uh, the witches, you know, or the Jews in their case, the people who are behind everything, uh, take out these people. But now they have modern weaponry and modern, they have gas. You know, they have concentration camps. Uh, they have trains to put them all in the same place. You know, it's a, it's a very extremely dangerous combination. You know, this very mm-hmm. simplistic way of seeing the world mixed with modern technology, extremely dangerous. Yeah. All right, let's move into um, uh, the other section. Let's talk about Ivan Drago. Um what do you guys take from the communist part, his critique of communism? He's not really like, he's quite positive about Marxism insofar as it is seen as a, or characterized as a move forward. 
and not a movement backwards. But he says that the where it becomes childishness is that it is utopian. Yeah. In his conclusion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's the it's the classic Niebuhr critique of communism, which is that it's just too it, it's too naive about what really takes place and how humans really behave and how we are very selfish. I'll read. Um... So it's more advanced in its pretensions mm-hmm. and not and, and, and its deceptions. Right. Well, yeah. So, yeah. so while fa- we could say fascism is more sincere. Right. Yeah. And that it's it tells us what it wants, you know, or whatever. No. But communism is under a delusion, a self-deception and, and a deception to everybody else. Interestingly, I, I, I really haven't thought through this too well, but I want you guys to take on it because Niebuhr ends up saying that the pretensions of uh, communism, Marxism, is that it thinks it can create the beginning of history and a new society. But Niebuhr says it, it doesn't begin there at all. It ends history. It ends society mm-hmm. if it gets what it wants. So he says uh, it's communism thinks is capable of creating a society in which all tensions are resolved and the final root of human anarchy is eliminated. If that were really possible, its new society would not be the beginning of history as it fondly imagines, but its end. Mm-hmm. For the dynamic energies of human life, which destroy the harmonies of nature, are also the creative forces of history. That is a paradox which has not dawned upon the consciousness of any simple-minded modern, whether liberal or radical. Um, the fabric of history... I have this underlined, the fabric of history is woven upon a loom which has greater dimensions than any known history. So the communists are really placing all their faith on this emerging history, um, that history is going to resolve all the incongruities of life and find this final um, uh, end um, that will be perfect. But Niebuhr brings out, I think maybe for the first time, because he's been dabbling in Augustine for the past seven years, um, and he calls history a loom, which I think is a really interesting way of understanding history. So Niebuhr moves from kind of the simple XY radius of Hegelianism, of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, this very two-dimensional way of understanding reality, to adding this kind of Z radius that is, you know, perfectly captured by the imagery of a loom you know, where there's extra dimensions actually to history, more than just the simplified version of what, uh, of what communist Russia sees. And he ultimately concludes that the problem of good and evil cannot be completely resolved in history. And any attempt to do it is basically what he's arguing is that, you know, is in itself going to cause more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fascists are plagued by the problems of childishness, and the problems of communism are brought, are brought about by lacking a, a certain type of childlikeness um, and sincerity about the way things actually are. Yeah. It's uh, in the throes of its own illusions. And then the final part, any last words about fascism and communism? I would have loved to see uh, him do one for a, a democratic republic you know for a, a, whatever you want to yeah. call it, government i would have loved to see him throw that in there to talk about how we do that 
Well, this is kind of a prelude in a way to irony of American history because he's gonna he's not gonna uh, maintain this um, child adult uh, dialectic, but he will bring about innocence, right? Uh, in an irony of American history, and yeah. a lot of the pretensions you know going on, um, the simple, wow. the simplistic ways that we view ourselves. Yeah, and I wonder if he, he, if he, it would have been more instructive to use. I mean, I guess no. It's at the start of World War II, so communism, fascism are all the rage. But I don't know. Nowadays, I wish he would put democratic. You know, we, I wish we had a version where the Democratic yeah. Republic was in there. Write it, dude. Yeah, write it up. We'll post it on the new Niebuhr website, which is forthcoming. Uh, oh, yeah. One last thing about this fascism, uh, communism thing. Why does communism fail, or what 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 happens with communism? Like like what what is a final conclusion we can draw about this? Let's return to Rocky Four. Rocky still beats him, despite all his fancy technology, despite all Ivan Drago's you know advancements and developing the human physique, and endurance and strength. This guy from the cabin in the woods came in and whooped him. All right, there's my there's my little little bit of patriotism there for you guys. You um, you really like Rocky. I've seen it a few Fetishizing times. Fetishizing Rocky a bit there. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that I've never seen it. I think I know oh, what you're, you guys are missing out. I, I know what your Halloween You've costume seen is. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Rocky. Yeah, I'm yeah. going as Rocky, shirtless. Yeah. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I'm just saying there's a good metaphor, I'm, you know, and it's, and it's my favorite movie, too. Yes, that's a good metaphor. But uh, it, it, no, it's a good movie. So um, the last part, final section, um, mm-hmm. part four, childlikeness in an adult. Mm-hmm. I thought this was great. I thought there's a lot of good gems here. Um, wh- what is What does he do in this section? Anybody? This is where I think he really distinguishes child likeness in childishness mm-hmm. yeah childishness as you read earlier i actually earlier when you talked about retaining i actually had written in my notes retain i'm like that's not exactly what neighbors get at so i crossed it out but childishness is that we're re- trying to retain trying to hold on to something that is moving away moving away from you mm-hmm. um it's dying uh, but child likeness is Niebuhr calls a is like a theologian because you're asking bigger questions of like not just how questions but why are these things that are happening why are they like this mm-hmm. who put them there where are we going these these sorts of bigger questions and you get bigger answers for but it also ends up with how you accept the world as well as a different result so. Hmm. So the child, like like he says, the child is a theologian. He yeah. says, uh, every child is yeah. born a the- theologian, which may be one reason why moderns regard theologians as obscurantists. Um, the child is a theologian rather than a scientist. Mm-hmm. And we brought up the how, the how-why distinction earlier on. Yeah, I think it's what like Aristotle would call first philosophy. The, yeah. It's all about what, what are the first causes of things is what we should be concerned with. And being, and if we merge those questions, I think with sincerity, I think that we, we should get um, yeah. something really helpful. And with, with that larger perspective on questions, you get 
different, a different possibility of how you respond to the world as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'll read the section that neighbor writes. So he, he says that it's, this is the child, the childlike theologian, childishness of the, the childlikeness of a theologian and therefore approaches life with awe, hope and fear mm. with awe because it knows that the mystery of life is something more than unknown region, not yet explored by an advancing science with hope because it doth not yet appear what shall be. And no record of past history gives us an adequate clue of what creative omnipotence may bring forth out of the infinite possibilities of existence with fear, because it knows the possibilities of evil, which appear at each new turn in history are never adequately anticipated by any analysis of the past the wisdom of such childlikeness will will prefer uh, its hopes to its fears knowing that good is more primary than evil that the world could not exist at all if it were not good creation being a triumph over chaos it will therefore approach life fearful yet unafraid Good. So let's break this. Let's break this down one by one. So all, overall, he says what the child can offer us is a wisdom mm -hmm. about life. Uh, and he brings up three really important points right here. And then he'll get into it a little bit more later. Awe. What's he talking about with awe? Like, why do we need what can we learn from the child about awe? A-W-E. Well, awe is linked to science, right? Mm -hmm. Awe is a sort of Aristotle says that all philosophy begins in wonder. Yes. Oh, wow, what is this? So, like, when you start reaching beyond what can be naturally explained, then you have a deeper grounding and appreciation for the reason things occur. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that is that adequate? That no. makes total sense. So, yeah. as adults, we the temptation is to just live in the two dimensions yeah. of yeah. what science and that and the how question can give us. Yes, but a child releases us from that and yeah. allows us to admire beyond the limitations of science. And if we remember from the first section, Niebuhr does say that um, maturity can lead to a death of our imagination whereas the child likeness leads to a rebirth of that imagination yeah, that's right, right? Or, it unfixes us yeah and I, I literally love the next line like i, I could read this a thousand times that i mean you just read it but i want to read it again when he says with hope because it does not yet appear what shall uh what we shall be and no and no record of past history gives us an adequate clue of what creative omnipotence may bring forth out of the infinite possibilities of existence yeah, just like yeah. speaking of twitter like one of the things that's just like bizarre to me like you know reading like theists atheists you know they're always trying to act like they have like a real firm grasp of like what the future brings or what reality yeah. brings and it's like man do you do you really like think about like the infinite like even if like you're an atheist and you believe in like the multiverse for instance as a solution it's like you're basically opening a pandora's box of an infinite possibilities of existence but your, your imagination about what's possible in reality is so limited. And it's just like, it shocks me every time I hear it. I'm like, you believe that the universe is infinite and that there are infinite possible realities, but yet you, you, you think that there's a long list of things that aren't possible, but there are infinite possibilities. It's just like, it's yeah, something that yeah. confounds me all the time, all the time. I, I literally think about that, literally that problem, no, that dilemma. Well, I think the infinite possibilities are daily. relegated to natural causes as opposed to things outside those things. So I get that. But the one the one question I wanted to ask you guys, because when Zachary read that, it just kind of blew my mind. 
awe, hope, and fear are the recipes to get us beyond tragedy. Yes, that yes. is true. The next chapter is about Christianity and tragedy, so that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, but I mean, perfect. hope gives us an adequate clue of what creative omnipotence may bring forth out of infinite possibilities. We're not solely uh, tied to chaos and disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, Once we get beyond the sort of limited thinking of the romantics, of the idealists, of the fascists, of the communists, all these very naturalized philosophies, and we get a deep spiritual theology here Mm. we get the sense that the tragedies that are ever reoccurring may not always be the things that happen yeah 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 yeah, so yeah yeah, so okay i'm I'm thinking about it in terms of this i got on the unhitching thing last last week with god unhitching god from the tribe Mm. i think awe unhitches us from naturalism from scientism yeah and I think hope unhitches us from history. Yep. It unfixes us, makes us look beyond uh, historical necessity mm-hmm. or you know, the myth of historical necessity. And let's talk about that last thing, fear. fear. What does yeah. fear unhitch nice. us from? I think fear unhitches us from illusion and complacency. Um, And this is what he says about fear, that if we have childlike fear, um, with fear, because it knows the possibilities of evil, which appear at each new turn in history, Mm -hmm. are never adequately anticipated by any analysis of the past. So he's he's releasing us, uh, this childlike fear is a real fear that we should have. I think earlier on in the chapter, he says that the child, like having a childlike knowledge releases us from kind of the natural explanation of death and life that are too small to actually capture the the, the horrors of death and the beauty of life. A scientific way of thinking of things can't even get us to approach those things. Uh, But a child can release us from that. And a, a childlike fear can release us from the illusion that we've got it all figured out because evil yeah it can be around every corner yep you i'm going to restate what you said in a different way because neighbor doesn't stay to here exactly as we've doing it but fear can release us from ourselves as well mm-hmm. of our own self yes, tensions right. right so um but yeah, and this section is much more about the possibilities of evil well i guess i can cover it evil of nations even evil of but we have to bring it back to us and like well our own the self-illusions of that we are necessarily good the right? evil in our own tribe yeah. you know the evil yeah. in our own the evil in our own systems and the possibilities yeah. for evil coming from within some, something great that we just did you know and our achievements and things like that yeah recapturing the yeah. awe hope and fear are what unchain us from a fixed reality and allows us to imagine beyond tragedy Ah, okay uh it's the part of the book where we like just uh. yeah i wanted to read this because i loved how he cast shade at um we can only assume the hitlers and mussolinis of of his world where he says the joys of birth and the oh just a second ago i said this was earlier in the chapter but it's actually here the joys of birth and the grief of death are richer more satisfying and more terrible 
than the rational expectancies suggested by vital statistics. No rationalist in the period of bourgeois complacency in which it was believed that the demonic forces in history had been permanently banned by human prudence could have foreseen or did foresee this sorry era in the world's life in which nations have gone mad and, and worship as their gods ridiculous leaders who have suddenly emerged out of the twilight zone of political burlesque. Yeah. <laughs> I read that aloud this morning. Niebuhr's got a way of, you know, he's got a way with you words. You really feel comfortable on your skin. Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, this, that's what we're seeing now is this, this twi- you know, all these ridiculous leaders who have suddenly emerged out of the twilight zone of political burlesque. Oh my gosh. But it, I mean, it's a great way to put it. I mean, it's, he's, people thought oh, we're over this. We've, we've moved past this era and all of a sudden you end up with literally the worst of the worst. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, and they're supposed to be the best that our nations can put forward. You know, like we wandered into the darkness and came out. It's so, we're so confused. Surrounded by a bunch of crazies. Uh, I wanted to, he, he adds one more thing, I think. On to awe, fear, and, or I'm sorry, awe, hope, hope, and fear, and it's humor. And he brings up Francis of Assisi for this. I, I think this is a fantastic one. I'll just read it. He says, it is not without significance that the real saints of history, the real saints of history, and this is kind of to contrast, he, sa- he brings this up right after the uh, the the ridiculous leaders uh, from the emerging from the twilight zone of political burlesque. He next goes into the real saints um, as distinguished from morbid self-flagellating ascetics have a delightful sense of humor. So humor is the next thing he brings up as had Francis of Assisi, for instance, he says, this sense of humor is based upon a curious quality of disillusionment, which has not resulted in either bitterness or despair. And this is a really important quote here. He says, it is without, so this humor that Francis had, this humor is without bitterness because judgment of the fellow man are tempered by the forgiveness, which is prompted by repentance. It is without despair because no evils in the world can disturb the firm faith in the goodness of God and his ultimate triumph over evil. This quality of mirthful serenity is unlike the innocency of, ch- of childhood, which knows, uh, which knows no evil. It has looked into the abyss of evil, and it is no longer affrighted by it. This state might be termed a second childhood, but for the uncomplimentary connotation of that term, it is at any rate the spiritual state which follows the second birth of repentance and conversion. So he's almost like having humor having a sense of humor as being kind of the final form of discovering childhood uh, in adulthood. Because he's saying humor is a product of faith as well, because it is the second, is the thing that um, follows repentance and rebirth, yeah. right? Yeah, you've gone through the fire. You've gone through the, the fire of, of sin and adulthood and reason and all these types of things. And yet you're able to, to stand back from it and laugh yeah, and laugh without bitterness yeah. and laugh yeah. without judgment. Um, but, uh, but laugh with kind of, kind of a distance from, from evil. So there's a quite a, a different quality of humor 
people of faith have than people on the mundane yeah. do, right? Um, yeah, and it's partly being able to laugh at ourselves and to be able to laugh at the situations. Yeah, uh, Laughter is what is a symptom of being able to uh, take the world as it is, as it's given, mm-hmm. I think. I've got one more quote here, because I think maybe humor with all these... And all these uh, qualities mixed together. Um, I don't know if you've read this. I'll read it again. It says, spiritual health in both individuals and societies is an achievement of maturity in which some excellency of childhood is consciously reclaimed after being lost in the complexities of life. It is an inner inner integrity, not on this, but the other side of inner conflict. It is sincerity, not on this, but the other side of contrite recognition of the deceitfulness of the human heart. It is in the goodness of life, not on this side, but on the other side of disillusionment and despair. It is naivety and serenity, not on this side, but on the other side of sophistication. In no case is the exact outlook of the child reclaimed. Mm-hmm. So we're just reclaiming those certain excellencies, those good qualities, which are, probably the humor the all the hope and the fear yeah right and he says what's at the end is never really like the beginning no like we're, we're drawing from the beginning this child likeness but it's kind of moving with us as we go forward so yeah so he's saying it's not uh, once again it's not childishness of re- retention of of child naivety yeah. but, but he it's does, a reclaiming of a good the good form of it but he does call it something different spiritual health mm-hmm. the the good qualities of childlikeness are spiritually healthy for us because it does take us beyond ourselves when you ask those bigger questions. And, yeah. Yeah. Know. It's really interesting. I find myself most spiritually unwell. I think when I'm, when I'm most anxious and get frustrated with mm-hmm. things. Yeah. So let's take like yesterday. For but I was about to bring it up. <laughs> so yesterday, Aaron and I were just fuddling around with stuff uh, for church stuff, church work and, you know, bulletin stuff and liturgy stuff and all kinds of stuff. Um, and the whole process of just working with a word processor and all this stuff is just getting so grating on me and just getting I'm just getting so flustered. Um, I would say that's very spiritually unhealthy. The ability to stand outside of that and just laugh at it. Yeah. You know, that's the difference is being able to recognize that you've been here before. This is yeah. nothing to be angry about. Nobody's coming to kill you, bro. Just chill out. It took you a day to figure that out. But, you know, neighbor doesn't say that exactly. <laughs> it did. But but that's so even like if and it's not just fr- like frustration yeah, yeah, yeah. over little stupid stuff, but it's frustration over the evils of the world. Um, over bad things that happen is to be able to look at them and understand the evil of it, but also to be able to be at, at, at enough distance to understand, you know, kind of maybe not with a chuckle, but with. Okay. I think maybe just a recognize, recognizing the irony of the situation. Yeah. That's what Niebuhr would probably say, right? And that's the certain humor. things are just out of your control. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's where the humor comes from that. Well, I really can't do nothing about it. Yeah. Yeah, can't do anything about it. Sort of thing, yeah. That's unchaining yourself, yeah. Any last words? Uh, the the why side of things, you know? Uh, the awe, the, the hope, and the fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. 
All right. So um, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Like and subscribe. Give us a good rating if you're liking it. Write us a review. Uh, that kind of stuff really helps the show. Follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and quotes. Uh, we also like to engage with listeners on there. You can um, also follow us each individually on Twitter. Our handles are in the Love Thy Neighbor Twitter bio. Um, thanks everybody so much again for listening. Take care and stay safe out there. <laughs>